Get in, dear listener. We're going shopping. In this episode, your trendy hosts find themselves woven into the fabric of Bridgerton, where they discuss fashion, politics, and Big Daddy Dandy. Without further ado, talk of the turn, The Duke and Us, Episode 4, A Modiste Proposal. Dear listeners, I'm Erin. And I'm Elle. And we're two of over the 82 million households that fell deep into the Bridgerton series. And we can't like things in a chill way. In this episode, we are discussing Regency fashion. So we've really kind of just broken this up into two parts, men's fashions versus women's fashions. However, knowing Elle and I, we will overlap, I'm sure, and, and go on tangents. But I thought that I would introduce the fashion center of Bridgerton, which is the modiste. So modiste really just means mode fashion, and it's someone who makes and sells dresses and hats for women. We see her as Madame Devereaux. Is it Madame Devereaux? Miss Devereaux? I think it's Madame. I think, I think they call I her Madame. I think it's Madame Devereaux. Yeah. So she's kind of the the center in in the town for for the series, but a modiste would be someone who would help to make a dress for some kind of occasion or a wedding dress. It would always have you know some kind of fabrics on hand. Basically, a tradesperson. There's another term that comes up specifically when Daphne is engaged, which is about her trousseau, and a trousseau is basically like a hope chest, what we would understand as a hope chest. It could contain dresses, jewelry, shoes, even pottery, and it just set the bride up for the first months in her new married life. One of the things that we still have and practice traditionally with weddings, I guess in Western culture, is the something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. It's kind of like a diluted version of what a trousseau was. The style of the time can go by quite a few different names. One would be Regency, which we've discussed previously, has to do with the Prince Regent at the time. One would also maybe be called the Empire Style, and that has to do with the Empire line and the Empire waist that you see in most of the dresses. One that the waist is created right under the bust, and then the draping just kind of goes down. I also like to refer to that style as my preferred Thanksgiving dress style so that (laughs) that I wear every Thanksgiving so I can eat to my tummy's content. And I don't have to unbutton anything. I just, you know, let it all hang out. And the empire in that, I'm assuming, refers to the first French empire, which is what we had after the French Revolution and the French monarchy fell. You got it. Yeah. And refers directly, I think, to Empress Josephine, who was Napoleon's right. lady. And so I'm assuming then when you go to Bontons and you buy yourself an empire-waisted maxi dress, <laughs> you are in fact embodying, you're referencing a piece of history that is both French mm-hmm. and Grecian in nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're referencing the French who are referencing the ancient Greeks. That's right. Yeah. You know, the personal is political. So you are, you're really honoring that political bond too. Yeah. You're telling everybody you are pro-democracy. That's right. When you wear an empire-waisted dress, 
It is a statement. That's right. Exactly. You're like, I like food. And I like comfort. (laughs) I like representation in my government. (laughs) Yeah. So a third term that I I found just in my research, I had not heard of it, is referred to as the directoire. So, yeah, that is in direct reference to the French for the directory, which was the name of the French revolution government that was set up after the revolution. So, yeah, with that in mind, these styles, a lot of them refer back to what we would consider in, you know, our modern civilization as we know it, the first signs of democracy, which would be in ancient Greece. So it was like a rejection of royal excess. It's references to that democratic sort of state as opposed to a monarchy and and all of that ornateness. Yeah. And naturalism, really. Yes. Naturalism. Yeah. Classic. All for like kind of classic effect. But now keep in mind that, you know, England was still number one colonizer, I would say. Colonizer numero uno at the time. So they were stationed and going to lands far and away and then bringing home things. That's how we get the great tradition of British tea came from the East. Silks were were brought in and other things that came from colonized lands were referred to as Orientalism, which in our 2021 brains is not the chillest of words. I know that some older people sometimes still refer to people of Asian heritage as being Oriental. That is not what we're talking about here. That is not cool. Orientalism here is referring to the objects that were brought from the Orient or from Asia. And really, they're talking about China. So Asians are all not a monolith either. So it's also not super cool to be referencing all of the East as as Oriental. But... That was two centuries ago. So hopefully we've we've grown and, and learned a little bit. But these would be things such as the use of silks and turbans. A lot of times you will see turbans or some kind of like silk caps on women. Even Lord Byron. I feel like he has some portraits painted of him in like he a does. turban. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of the influence of that. All for classical effect. All ignoring the actual people who are directly related to those cultures. Well, yeah. I mean, a, a mainstay of colonialism is appropriating other cultures and that is basically the entire thing is taking what you want from other cultures and not really caring about the people who made that culture yeah or what it represents or what traditions go into it they were doing it a ton in the regency era yeah you also do see dresses more of like light sheer fabric you see and i i think some like Jane Austen type of movie representations do a really good job of showing fine stripes and floral patterns costuming. We definitely see this in Bridgerton though. Certainly, I feel like Eloise, her style is like as masculine as you can get within the confines of this female Regency style. But yes. um, but you see like a stiffer, a stiffer fabric on her. I know she wears jackets that seem slightly militaristic of what men might be wearing at the time. And stripes. I feel like she might, there's some stripes in her. Floral patterns, we look no further than the Featheringtons, which we will get into in a bit. (laughs) So the shape. So speaking of the Featheringtons, one of like the very first scene of Bridgerton is something that sticks out, I think in everyone's minds who's watched it, is of the, is it the oldest daughter? Yes, I think it must be the oldest daughter getting her her corset laced and pulled as tight as possible to create a waist. 
What's really important about this scene, though, is that I've learned throughout my readings and stuff here that the Regency era was actually freedom from corsets. So really, they did wear stays, which were laced up kind of stiffer material, but that was really to mostly just flatten the front so that you would have like a really nice linear draping effect of your dress rather than creating a waist. Because again, if we're wearing empire line dresses, you're not really seeing a waist. You're just seeing a straight down draping of fabric. So it's kind of signifies that Lady Featherington is reliving her own youth, which would have come decades before through her daughters. So she's not technically in fashion when she's creating this uncomfortable situation for her daughter that results in feigning in front of the queen, which sucks. Another interesting shape that I found in this was not just the empire line or, or the stays, but the coats that they wore. So I read about two coats that were popular. One is the police coat, which is P-E-L-I-S-S-E. And it was basically just a fur-lined, fur-trimmed coat or cloak. And we also do see that fashion in in men too. So that term transferred to both styles. But the one I really love was the the redding goat, which is also the riding coat. In the back, it kind of went down to the the ground, but then it was cut in the front, almost maybe where the empire line was, and then the front was open so that you could reveal the gown underneath, which I believe we might see an example of that when Daphne is riding with her brother, Anthony, in one of my favorite costumes of all time. And she's wearing that really beautiful, almost like a fascinator uh, in front of her hair. And she's got her like one little parentheses curl um but yeah she's dangling in the wind yeah very beautiful (laughs) so materials that would be found in this would be again we talked about you know linen muslin another signifier of them being you know the great colonizers great being you know in use of big adjective not in use of like cool 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 the adjective yeah no they they were the best at it they were (laughs) the best of doing something really terrible yeah (laughs) that that would have severe impacts to this very day on many many countries yeah yeah exactly so one would be cashmere so cashmere was very popular at this time mostly in the form of like a shawl and cashmere as we know it is spelled c-a-s-h-m-e-r-e but it is in direct reference to cashmere which is k-a-s-h-m-i-r which is still a anglicanized version of an indian word they were Um, good at that but yeah yeah i mean that's Again, something they're super good at. So that would be worn as a shawl because that was sort of precious and because they were at war and couldn't always easily travel from India back to Great Britain. Paisley, Scotland started creating in that, you know, in that town, they started creating the same kind of cashmere shawl, but couldn't be technically called cashmere because it's like, it's like, the, I think the thing with wine, you know, like you can't call it a... Oh, yeah. Sauvignon Blanc, I guess, if it's not from Sauvignon or whatever. Interesting story. I have been to Paisley, Scotland. Ooh. Yeah, I traveled to Scotland when I was, I think, 25. I spent 10 days there by myself. This is pre-laptop, pre-cell phone. So I was just like, wild, wild west is what it felt like. But when I was in Glasgow, Paisley is literally 20 minutes away by, like, train so i took a train there and i just thought it'd be really interesting to visit a town that 
a pattern was named after and like had a really interesting history with fabrics. Did they lean into the theme? They do. Yeah, there there's lots of really cool textile things that you can go and see and it's a super pretty cool town and um David Tennant of Doctor Who fame is also from there, which is Hell yeah. I love him. So that's another reason why I wanted to go. But speaking of traveling, as we talked about in our last episode, this was kind of like a domestic period in in English history where a lot of people were staying home or staying in town. And so handbags and travel bags, instead of, you know, the larger like trunks, not that they didn't have those, but they would, um, if they were just going on a short day's ride somewhere, two days ride, this is the dawn of like the travel bags for ladies. One cool handover that we still have is the reticule bag, which I think now we would kind of refer to it as a wristlet, but it was like this drawstring little pouch that had some kind of ribbon or, or string on it that you would carry on your wrist that would contain your little personal effects. Your pin money. Yes, your pin money. My mother still gets pin money from my father. No! <laughs> I know it's in this year of 2021 AD. Yep. Yeah, isn't that awful? Does um, she keep it in her reticule? <laughs> no, she keeps it in her giant junky handbag that has like <laughs> tissues and like open chapsticks and blech. but yeah again sign of the you know sign of decades from before and then the last couple of things i want to mention as far as like interesting items or materials are the poke bonnet which is the bonnet that is kind of held close to your head but then fans out and can kind of cover your face and is usually fastened with some kind of a ribbon and i don't know that i we've seen some of them in bridgerton on the prominent when they're promenading but i definitely know the bennett sisters in pride and prejudice love to go shopping for ribbons so that they can you know change up their bonnet the other thing about that bonnet though is that having such a large like piece of real estate that's kind of poking out like that, it can be decorated with a lots of like feathers or ribbons or flowers. And then finally, Elle and I talked a little bit about this. We found one piece of headwear that Eloise wore to be very interesting, which is when she has kind of like they're like two ribbons that kind of cross her head and then they kind of dangle down a little bit. And there's a few things that this could be referred to as one thing that I found, which I don't think is really it because it's more, you would see it more on like someone's wedding day would be a Juliet cap, which is really just an open work piece of lace or mesh or crochet. And it could be worn like further down on the forehead. I do think that people, you know, in fashion, I've seen it worn even now, like in a little bit where it's more on the back of the head. That's direct reference to Romeo and Juliet. But what we really think it might be would be um, something called a bandeau, which is really just a headband, but created with ribbon. So you could use two ribbons like Eloise uses. You could use one for just like a headband effect. But then I also saw in some of these really great fashion books that I found, I saw one that was more worn like at the early part of the turn of the century, like 1800 or 1805, where it's like a bandeau and then it's attached to a little cap, kind of worn like a little snood or a little, um, I don't know, what are they called? Like a beanie, I guess, maybe. A one of those like slouchy beanies? Yeah, like a little slouchy beanie. (laughs) Yeah, but not really crocheted like we would have a beanie, but more of like a lighter fabric a sack or something. Another really interesting thing about women's fashion and any person's fashion at the time was that it could really show your status. 
So you would dress a certain way to go to a ball. You would dress a certain way to go on a promenade. You would dress a certain way when you were in mourning. And you would dress a certain way when you were getting married. Balls, I saw, mostly what I saw was that younger women were more wearing lighter colors. You see Daphne a lot, baby blue, white at times, cream, lavender. All of that was to show how young and innocent and light and refreshing that she was. Darker colors you would more see on older women or women who were married. Lady Danbury is a really great example of she wears that like deep purple, which is such a wonderful signifier that she is... She's kind of yeah, she's kind of but she's kind of created her own royalty. Yes. Like she's like yes, she is titled, but like the way the costumes that she wears again, kind of like Eloise, there's like slightly a unisex vibe to them. She makes her own way in this life. And I love it. Morning, you would yeah, you would wear black. You would wear black for I believe I've I've read a few I don't know, different kind of versions. But I think the polite thing is that, or the accepted thing, is that you wear black for a solid year minimum. Some people would choose to wear it uh, later. I know in one of the Bridgerton books, maybe, I guess it must be Francesca's story. Yes. she. There's a really great deep dive into like her mourning period. And when she decides to come out of mourning, It's not like she suddenly wears these like bright colors that are like, hey, hey, here I am. But she transitions back into a gray or like a deep lavender. Yeah, there's a there's a half mourning style. Yes. Of of where you're showing like, yeah, I'm still mourning, but it's been a while. Yeah. And so I'm kind of through it. Yeah. And I I do really appreciate that that's in those kind of gray and lavender tones. I, I think it's really interesting that lavender is considered a morning color. That's something I wouldn't have considered, like that there's this like transition period. But yeah, that makes sense. It would be totally weird to be like, hey guys, I'm like back in the wearing bright red or whatever. No, almost none of them were red. They would wear maybe like a deep orange or something. But but yeah, so um, another thing that we saw was that when Eloise is at the modiste, she and her mother are talking about lowering her skirts. And I tried to see if there was some like very formal rule about that in my research but the conclusion that I came to is really just that skirts were lowered when you became more of a woman only because you weren't some like child running around who could get the bottom of your skirt dirty (laughs) so it's really just like a signifier of I mean it's almost like I think if to compare it to nowadays if someone in like middle school or early high school wears high heels for the first time or something that it's just like You know, it's just a signifier. But the interesting thing about that, though, is that skirts were not necessarily completely flush with the floor, like not completely floor length, because ankles, it was acceptable for ankles to be visible at this time. Again, there was like the, there was modesty here, but there was also just this like freedom, back to nature, you know, classic sort of lightness to to all of the styles. So with that being said, though, I did want to mention Queen Charlotte because she, her fashion is just like such a showstopper every time she is on screen. Absolutely. Yeah. It occurred to me when I was looking at all of these gorgeous, gorgeous dresses and shapes of the time that one of the reasons I think she stands out is because her fashion really looks like it's from more of the, not like a one-to-one comparison, but, but really more influenced by that 
Louis the Sixteenth. So like she's got those like hips that come out, you know, those like boned hips that come out. She has these like V-line corsets in the front. The it's almost like she's wearing these like pieces of like silken tapestry at some points. Yes. And and her wigs, her amazing enormous wigs really seem like like Marie Antoinette style or Madame Pompadour wigs. And I think that's such an interesting thing to have. I mean, again, I'm sure that it's influenced by actual Queen Charlotte's fashion at the time, but it really does show that she is a part of a, a movement that is on its way out. So she is a part of this monarchy that is not going to be the way it's always been. In they're stuck you know. in the old. Yes, yeah. And so I just thought that was really interesting. And and the the last thing I wanted to mention with her was that I found on Instagram that the hair and makeup director Adam James Phillips he said that they designed her wig or I guess he was wig master Adam James Phillips he created this amazing wig so if you go back and watch the Bridgerton scene in episode 8 the last episode of season 1 where she is attending the Hastings ball the last ball of the season she is wearing an amazing wig that is made up of, it's white, it's all like, you know, powdered white. She's got dreadlocks that are all kind of like vining up this this wig. And then she has these bows that are made out of the wig hair. All along the dreadlocks are these little golden cuffs that could symbolize, you know, their marriage and their, their rings. And then at the top, there are two cages with lovebirds. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like what an amazing, intentional, thoughtful way to show her kind of accepting their marriage. And like, you know, because she was up in the air for a little bit with, with her nephew. Yeah, incredibly thoughtful. And it is very much referencing that Marie Antoinette shape yes. of the hair with the dreadlocks. It's It's so, so good. And just so thought out yeah i I love i love when people put this much time and passion into their work because it shows even even in the tiny tiny things it just adds to the overall enjoyment of a work and whether or not you're conscious of it at the time i mean i certainly wasn't those things like really take root in your brain when you as the viewer are watching these stories we're seeing her in these costumes and like subconsciously being like oh she's she's of this different era or whatever that stuff is so foundational when you create these stories that i just think it's you know it's really brilliantly done so do we want to move on to our character spotlight the most fashionable of them all hell yes (laughs) i'm so ready for our character spotlight so today we are going to be talking about lady featherington you knew it was coming you had to know it was coming (laughs) We've not shied away from talking about our love of Lady Featherington, even though she does get a a bit of a villain edit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) She is fashion icon. I'm sorry. She really is. (laughs) She is, you know, in the show, she is designed to be presented as somebody who is gaudy, Mm -hmm. who has no taste for the Regency era. And she is very much of that, Georgian taste level where the fabrics are fine the the 
embellishments and the prints are loud, which is of her time and her youth, maybe, but definitely on the outs of 1813 London. Mm-hmm. I did want to mention, I'm just I'm re-looking at some of these images. And, you know, when we're introduced to, to Lady Featherington and her daughters, they don't immediately stick out as being these, like, kind of costumed cartoony characters because they're being presented at court. And the reason mm-hmm. that they are wearing very specific colors and cuts and these feathers in their hair is because that was a directive of the queen. The queen said, if someone is being presented at court, they have to wear this many feathers in their hair. They have to wear this kind of color. Um, They have to wear gloves, like all that stuff. So that's like kind of the one time that they all look pretty great. (laughs) But it's because Lady Featherington was like barred from having these this say over their costumes. Yeah, they were wearing much more muted, that kind of white and gold look. Mm -hmm. But that is not Lady Featherington's style. Lady Featherington loves a pattern. Yes. She loves color. And she's not afraid. (laughs) She is unafraid show it or have her daughter show it on her behalf. She's Uh, a risk taker. Yeah, much to Penelope's dismay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because that's the other thing about the Featheringtons is that they all have this gorgeous red hair. And uh, I mean, I'm like kind of have a mousy brown hair now, but I was born a redhead and I've red undertones. And as someone who's pasty and has some kind of reddish, you know, tones to her hair, you can't wear everything. <laughs> like there yeah. are things that just super clash with that kind of hair color. And so I think that, yeah, it's like, I don't know, sometimes it like, is that working? Like looking at some of these dresses, it's like, is that kind of working on you? But it's just, they're so outlandish. They are, they're so bold. So when these, you know, women are supposed to be demure and like um, they're, they're supposed to be presenting themselves as marriage material in like the way that they will be this sort of quiet force to keep in charge of the dukedom or the earldom or whatever. And the Featheringtons just look like they come, you know, kind of barging in. It really matches her personality. Although I will say that one dress of hers where it's like purple and this kind of like peach color mm-hmm. um, that they wear, she wears outside. It's like one of the promenade or like... Gorgeous. Yeah, they're having like a yeah. picnic on the promenade. And it's oh. like this kind of, it's an interesting mismatch of patterns. Like yes. it, it kind of splits down the front. And mm-hmm. the patterns don't quite align, but it's purposefully done that way. I, her, she's bold. She's bold. She's beautiful. She is an absolute force on screen. She's yeah. a, a presence. And I desperately want some side adventures that are just Lady Featherington, Lady Danbury, and Lady Bridgerton. Yeah. <laughs> I just want them to team up for something. Yeah. Because together they are they're pretty fantastic. And Lady Featherington is one of the characters that has kind of a downward arc mm-hmm. in Bridgerton. And she's one of those characters who's shown as a, you know, someone who's full of fault mm-hmm. and somebody who gets her comeuppance for her obsession with status. Mm-hmm. And her storyline is, I think, a powerful one in the Bridgerton series, even though that storyline only exists in the Netflix show. That storyline with Lord Featherington, all that isn't really in the book series, but it's all the more richer, you know, for having it included in the Netflix series, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, she's really just more of a gossip, I think, in the books. Yes, but she's she, a busybody. Yeah, she's, I don't know, there's something like likable about her because 
she really is a survivor, like all of these women are. One more thing that I wanted to point out about her, though, is which is hilarious to me, is that, okay, so when Marina comes to stay with them, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh my gosh, oh shit, this girl's beautiful. <laughs> like, she's immediately going to make, you know, the rest of my kids look terrible because she's just so beautiful. The way that she is in the show is that, you know, Marina has this gorgeous skin that actually works really well with this mustard yellow that she keeps trying to put poor pacey penelope in um and the other thing is that i think as a mark of marina not being kind of on the same socioeconomic level as her daughters is that she gets a dress that's a little toned down but the joke's on her because that's exactly what should be happening to their costumes is that if they just toned it down if they took off the fake feathers and if they like depuffed the sleeves a little bit or whatever um so as a result you have marina looking so magically beautiful (laughs) yeah and her more muted Mm -hmm. tones a simple cut even in the same yellow (laughs) yes that that lady featherington loves so much it it just it glows on her skin yes yeah as compared to her daughters that it just (laughs) you know that yellow just eats up yeah i have to say one of my favorite dresses in all of bridgerton is one of lady featherington's and it's her morning dress Mm -hmm. after everything goes down with lord featherington she's in this dark almost black pearlescent dress Mm -hmm. that's like you know depending on the angles Mm -hmm. a little bit green a little bit purple a little bit black and it is one of the most it's like ink and it's one of the most gorgeous dresses i've seen Mm -hmm. and she just carries it so well she carries herself so well and we wouldn't have this lady featherington without the work of polly walker yes who is so charismatic a force on screen and whose background is mostly TV, but American and British TV. The first time I was aware of her was when she was on Rome as a Tia of oh. the Julie. When she was a Tia, she was so good in Rome. She has had a really productive career in TV. I mean, it shows. It shows in Bridgerton that she knows exactly what she's doing (laughs) when it comes to this acting business. Yeah. And she knows how to command a scene. It's hard to ignore her even if she's in the background of a scene because she is such a presence. I'm also realizing who she is in, because she's been in another Regency movie. She was in Emma. And I, because I'm like just scrolling through and seeing and it's like, Emma, who is she in Emma? She is Jane Fairfax in Emma. She's the one who, um, like, Emma, like, no, so um, in the Gwyneth Paltrow one, 1996. Oh, I, I was like, I was thinking the new one. I was like, how is she? Sorry, no. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. In, no, so oh, that's amazing. Yeah, Jane Fairfax. Yes. She's, like, so, and in that show story, you know, whatever, Jane Fairfax, Jane, oh, gosh, Jane Fairfax. I'm, like, so excited that I'm yeah. realizing that Polly Walker is in this movie. <laughs> Jane Fairfax is incredibly quiet, and, like, Emma's biggest complaint about her really is that you kind of have to like pull the words out of her to have a conversation with her. So holy cow, like how night and day is that from Lady Featherington? Oh yeah, completely. Um, wow, yeah, a gorgeous actress, just so beautiful. It's interesting how much this co- these costumes, while she looks amazing in them in one way, when you see her as like just a normal person, she's like incredibly gorgeous 
Yeah, really and in Bridgerton, she is serving body adi adi. Oh my god, yes! Like it the is waist. wild. She's got yeah. she's got it all. Yeah, especially when when she comes into money and she's actually able to afford the hair she wants and like the clothes that she yeah. wants. She like she's serving, and it's it's glorious to witness. Yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited to see her transition into this mourning period in season two. Mm-hmm. Because she will be kind of forced to tone it down and like... And she won't like it. No, and I <laughs> assume her daughters will too, you know? Yeah, I'm sure she'll find a way to make mourning work for her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fashion-wise. Yeah. We live in a world of ever-changing sensibilities. What's unthinkable one generation can easily become the norm in the next. It's with this progressive vision that Benjamin Morgan of Castle Street offers the world his brand new product as a challenge. If you're cool with eating ass, why not try drinking it? Ass milk, that is. That's right. Benjamin Morgan's ass's milk is here to refresh and delight. It is but milk. Forget the nut milk. Visit glassofass.com for more information on the perfect subscription tier to quench your thirst today. So men's fashion. Before I get too deep into the men's fashion, because I will get deep into the men's fashion, <laughs> I just want to clarify that our conversation today, we are talk of the ton. We mostly talk about and concern ourselves with the gentry, the aristocracy, <laughs> and what their culture was during this time. So we're not really talking about fashion for the common people. It was mm-hmm. a much different look for them because uh, there was no fast fashion back then. There was no cheap clothing. Mostly, if you were not part of the gentry, if you were not part of good society and you couldn't afford to have your, your clothes tailor-made, you were either making what you could yourself or you were taking hand-me-downs from mm-hmm. richer people that you work for. So you were usually wearing out-of-fashion things if you were anyone but the very rich in England. So that that was fashion for them yeah, for the most part. But fashion for Regency men who were part of the gentry, who were part of the aristocracy, was very different. We have discussed before how one of the major appeals of this time setting for stories, for movies is so appealing is because of the fashion, the the men's fashion in particular, yeah. because it was a, a really heightened time of men's fashion. And fashion is cyclical. We go in waves of what's in fashion, what's out, what's cool, what's not. It's, I, I haven't read Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, but <laughs> I, I, I have good reason to believe it's mostly about the cyclical nature of fashion. <laughs> I mean, you know it what? certainly is long enough. So Let me know if I'm wrong. At me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it's okay? got to cover that sometime. That's to say that part of the function of fashion is to serve as a visual representation of the values of an up and coming generation. And fashion, in a way, is a, especially youth fashion, is a rebellion from established norms. You know, it's not your daddy society, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and we were coming out of that Georgian period, that right after the French Revolution, where during that time in the Georgian period in the French re- uh, pre-French Revolution, men's fashion in high society was extremely frilly. <laughs> you know, lots of lace, big wigs, heels, embroidered embellishments, very colorful, 
very fine fabric silks, expensive things, and a bit of a baggy fit. Like, (laughs) things were a bit baggy. And you know how the youth are. Whatever you're into, the youth are going to be like, I want the complete opposite. Yeah, they're going to be like, gross. (laughs) They're like, oh, you like baggy pants? Our pants are tight, okay? (laughs) And that's exactly what Regency men were like. They're like, oh, you're wearing those baggy britches. I see. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it wasn't that cool to look that gaudy anymore because it it was kind of gauche to to show off your wealth in that way. So in Regency fashion, wigs were Mm -hmm. tossed out. They were issued in favor of those for men that that short Grecian hairstyle, you know, that the curly, it it really based off of um, Caesar, natural, curly and windblown. They loved the windswept look. Like that was perfect. They would purposefully comb their hair to look like they were just on a ship, probably because they had a bit of an obsession with sea life and sailors and, and, you know, naval life. So you can actually see that in Bridgerton. I think Anthony and Benedict are great examples of what that kind of natural, short, curly, windswept look is like. And also, especially if you look at old portraits of of Regency men at the time who had that hairstyle, Mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot that looks familiar. Like, you're going to be like, oh, Zac Efron and (laughs) Justin Bieber are doing nothing new. (laughs) No, no, no. It's been a look to have your hair all kind of all over the place. I feel like Benedict really has that, like, forward Yes, his is, like, really swept forward. He has that really, like, wildly windswept look. Yeah, there's really great, I would recommend people looking up, like, behind-the-scenes photos of... Benedict and Anthony in, like, the hairdresser's chair. <laughs> Getting their um, hair curled. Yeah, because they literally, like, have curlers in, and it's it's very sweet. Another thing that was gone is all those frills. Like, all that lace, all that embroidery, it, just completely out. And it was traded in for the cut, the fit of the fabric. It's same with color. All those garish colors, anything bright except for, like, military uniforms, anything bright was gone. It was all muted tones and creams because you wanted to have a more somber, a more moderate look. And you showed off your wealth by showing off how well cut and fit the outfit was. And that was done through your local tailor. A lot of the Regency era gentlemen would go to their tailor instead of a modiste. Mm -hmm. Some of those tailors from the Regency era are actually still in business today in London. And they now do bespoke suits or really expensive, I'm sure, bespoke suits. It's interesting that it's still, these businesses are still around today. Bespoke always reminds me of the Kanye West and, oh gosh, what was that woman's name? It was the um, like American boy, American boy. Oh yeah. And the the lyric is like, before he speaks his suit bespoke. (laughs) Oh, that's a good line. Isn't that good? Yeah. I mean, Kanye is very controversial, but he's a great lyricist. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason he became Kanye West. Yeah. He's a talent. If you wanted to be considered a well-turned-out gentleman in the Regency era, at minimum, you would have to have a day look and a night look. Not a a day-to-night look. (laughs) (laughs) Completely separate looks. At minimum, especially in the the early Regency period, the day looks would consist of form-fitting buckskin knee-length breeches. Or pantaloons. Mm-hmm. The the pants got longer in the Regency era because before then it was mostly breeches. And part of that rebellion from what was before was lengthening the pants. Now, 
when I say they're form-fitting, they were form-fitting. Because <laughs> the entire point of these knee-length or ankle-length pantaloons or britches was to show off every single muscle and bit mm. <laughs> that that a man might have beneath his waist. And it, this was also inspired by the Greeks because they were looking at these statues and uh-huh. you know, these, these muscly, muscly men. And so the whole idea was to have these leather pants be so tight that you could see every single muscle. And other things. And, and, and other things. <laughs> and they were purposefully cream-toned during the day because yeah. they were meant to look like white skin. And so... people wonder why <laughs> those of us who are attracted to men, like... Love the Regency era? Squeeze me? They, 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 (laughs) listen, (laughs) I don't want to say that the way they dressed attracts the attention, (laughs) but. Yeah, true. The, again, Grecian muscle inspired (laughs) leather pants that were were meant to be cream toned to, to emulate skin and meant to show off every bit were actually, they were nicknamed, even back in the day they knew this, they were nicknamed uh, uh, Inexpressibles. <laughs> because Holy of, shit, that's be- great. Because of how much they showed off. And the thing is, too, is <laughs> if you were a dude, but you didn't really have the musculature to be showing off, you mm-hmm. know what you would do? You would pad that motherfucker. Yeah, you would. You would pad those pantaloons. <laughs> So that it looked like you had all those muscles. These, man, masculinity and femininity are such stupid social constructs. Yeah. This is what men did. Yeah. This is what men did to look good. And I love it. (laughs) But as you can imagine, if you're wearing extremely tight, essentially these were like leather daddies. Sure. (laughs) These These were fancy gentlemen leather daddies walking around these incredibly tight pants it was a moose knuckle rich time. <laughs> and if you want to see what I'm talking about, just, just look up Regency portraits. Like there's a, there's a lot of gathering going on um, in the crotch region for a lot of these dudes. And the pants at the time, they didn't have zippers. They didn't have belts. So suspenders were, were introduced during this time to mm. hold up the pants. And, you know, we still use suspenders today because they used buttons mostly to attach everything and to keep everything held up. There was no actual fly on pants. You would have a flap mm-hmm. <laughs> instead. Just this wide, usually wide, sometimes narrow front flap that would just be held up by two little buttons. Hmm. And then, you know, if you wanted to whip your dick out quick, <laughs> just yeah. unbutton and, and do what you got to do. To go with their leather leggings, let's call them what they are, <laughs> To go with to go with their skin-tight leather leggings, they would wear calf height boots mm. <laughs> they would wear calf height hessian or wellington boots and th- that was kind of like just their daytime as a, a utilitarian type deal but yes these men were walking around in their calf high boots with their leather leggings i dig it, it, it i mean it it worked it i was worked. thinking of that scene where simon is getting undressed you know i've seen a, a scene i've revisited in my mind <laughs> Quite a few times, to be honest. And he, yeah, he like, he takes off those suspenders. 
Yep. And he's, it's like a signal. It's like, it's go time. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, during this time, because, you know, the, the idea of what outerwear was and what underwear was it, different from, from what we consider it today. Right. Men would wear something called a banyan, which if you're familiar with the, the poet shirt, <laughs> mm-hmm. that that's basically what a banyan is. It's usually a linen uh, cloth. And that was considered uh, underwear. Um, mm. So it, to see even the shirt sleeves was usually like taboo. Mm. <laughs> like you you wouldn't yeah. want to be seen in your shirt sleeves because your shirt sleeves are underwears. We also have introduced during this time the precursor to the tie, to the ascot, the cravat, which was a, a, a big piece of the Regency era gentleman wear. And it was a, a very, very starched piece of fabric that would be tied tightly around the neck. <laughs> Which mm. sounds awful. Yeah, and like a little like a sex thing. A little bit. <laughs> just, just a just a bunch of leather daddies walking Getting around <laughs> with doing some just light autoerotic asphyx- asphyxiation walking down the street. <laughs> I mean, read into it what you will. Yeah. No wonder they were brooding all the time. Oh, yeah. The whole idea is that you would make your neck into this perfect cylinder, this perfect Mm. white cylinder. And from what I've read, part of it, too, was this was a time when people were doing snuff. They were uh, sniffing snuff regularly, especially men. And when you do snuff, apparently, one of the side effects is sometimes you'll get a little dribble out your nose, which is so gross. Uh (laughs) Just a little tobacco dribble running out your nose. And so part of the idea was that the cravat kept your head up at an angle so that your, you know, your face is always kind of leaning upwards. At this time, men who dressed in this way and whose head would be held at that angle because of their cravat were were called toffs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. partially because they would have this brown substance running down (laughs) their noses from time to time. But yeah, the cravat was an essential piece of fabric and actually... In Bridgerton, one of the things that people who like to point out the the differences, the inaccuracies, whatever, what have you, is that Simon's neckline is extremely scandalous, apparently. Oh. (laughs) Either way, because the amount of neck that he's showing off is, you know, he he would, if he was, you know, a real dandy, he would have the cravat. But you know what? I I like the neckline. (laughs) Yeah, but he's, that's why he's like more of that Lord Byron that like ready to get in the bed. Yes, he's cash. Yeah. He's a cash dandy. Mm -hmm. There's so many parts to the gentleman outfit. On top of your leather pants, on top of your waist shirt and your banyan and your cravat, you would have a waistcoat, which is what we now referred to as a vest um, Mm. or so. So you'd have this vest on top of your shirt. And on top of that, you would have a coat. And there are coats for all occasions, like a coat for whatever you wanted to do. There were morning coats. As Aaron said, there were riding coats. There were hunting coats. There were Mm. evening coats. You had to have a lot of coats to survive in Regency England as a gentleman. And in those coats, a lot of Regency men would keep their pocket watches. And one of my ah. favorite pieces of little trivia from this time is that they would keep their pocket watches in a, a in a tiny pocket in their vest, and it would be held to themselves with a chain. And in order to make it easy for them to to reach to to pull out their pocket watches, they would attach fobs, little pieces of fabric, and little pieces of jewelry to the front of their coat so that they could just easily tug. <gasps> 
their pocket watch. Like a little keychain. They were running around with like these little Pandora charms. (laughs) 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 Hanging, hanging off their stomachs. Ugh. Real men. This is what real men wear. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things too, when, when pants, especially when like the, the black evening pant came into more of a trouser kind of pant came into fashion, the... Because, you know, everything needed to stay in its place. You had your suspenders to keep everything in place. Uh, men wore garters on their socks and on their on their tights um, to keep them in place because there was no elastic at the time. Mm-hmm. So men were wearing garters, also uh, suspenders, but also their little trousers to keep them in place. They had little stirrups. <gasps> These gentlemen were out there in Regency, England, with stirrup pants on. <gasps> Oh my gosh. And I can't tell you how much joy that <laughs> has brought to my life. Just that little tidbit that they're walking around. Ima- <laughs> just, wow. just imagine imagine that scene where Simon's like, you know, sexually taking off his clothes. Yeah, and he's got reveals a little stirrup he, on. he's wearing stirrup pants. <laughs> I mean, I wore stirrup pants in like fourth and fifth grade. So it's like an yeah. early, slightly mid-1990s. Yes, women's. I... I I Pant. also wore, you know, stirrup <laughs> pants back in the day. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, just uh, amazing. And, and you know, at this time, again, because they're shying away, they're forcibly <laughs> moving away from the excessive nature of the Georgian period. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fabrics that men would wear were more, you know, wool and linen and, and cotton and buckskin. Because, you know, more natural. Right. Well, I mean, they're all natural fabrics, but like more subdued fabrics. Right. um, More common fabrics. Well, more related to like the country, too. Yes, absolutely. Like more easily sourced fabrics as well Mm -hmm. because of the time, which I'm sure was a huge influence on, on why they chose the fabrics that they did. But the Regency era, that fashion was set by the dandy. The dandy was a man of the gentry, of the aristocracy, whose main concern was the way they dressed and also being witty. Nice. (laughs) Those were the two things that they could give a fuck about. (laughs) And so these were men. Simon is an approximation of a dandy in the show. Mm -hmm. These were men at the the forefront of the fashion scene they were setting these trends of the longer pantaloons of the stirrup pants of all of those things there's a good amount of fun that has been made of them if you look up the lyrics to yankee doodle yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> americans love to make fun of dandies because <laughs> even though they were toned down versions of ostentatiousness they were still seen as it's it's not unlike today where yeah. you see an influencer on Instagram. Yeah, they were like a fashion plate. Yeah, and, and all they care about is fashion. And, you know, there, there's something slightly annoying <laughs> yeah. to the common person about that. You know, the common person who's worried about paying bills and just the day-to-day of their own lives. To see someone whose only care in the world is fashion right, could be annoying. So I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, it seems, I guess, I think it seems like superficial. Yes, yeah. They were seen as extremely superficial. And yeah, because they were. Yeah, <laughs> they were extremely superficial. And this is part of that. You know, uh, I think that the rise of the dandy coincides with the nature of the time where these men didn't really have anywhere else to go. They couldn't go anywhere yeah. else. So that they were stuck. They were stuck in England for the most part. 
and bored, I'm sure, bored as hell. And so some of them focused their energies into peacocking as hard as they could. Yeah. And uh, and those those were the dandies. I think that Colin Bridgerton is a great example of a dandy. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly the wit, like the wit yeah. and the charm of a dandy. He has like that. Like everyone wants him at a party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think his I, clothing wise, I think he's more old fashioned. Yeah, that's true. A little bit. He's a little bit subdued. But yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. Like he he has that sense to him of being in, incredibly charming and yeah, and like light and fun and yeah yeah just just being there for the the social Mm -hmm. aspect but we can't talk about men's fashion we can't (laughs) talk about dandies without discussing big daddy dandy (laughs) so buckle in (laughs) we're going on a journey friends because i need to tell you the story of george brummel i need a drink (laughs) george was New money. His grandfather was a shopkeeper. His father was a a private secretary to a lord. So his daddy and his granddaddy worked hard for the money. They they put in the time and effort. They climbed that social ladder as as high as they could in their lifetimes, and they did a, a pretty good job of it. Through their work, they were able to raise George in the fashion of a gentleman. They gave him everything. They sent him to Eton and to Oxford, which was the standard for all gentry. And George was, even a uh, even as a young boy, was always making fashion moves. In, in Eton and in Oxford, he was known for doing something just a little bit different with his fashions. And, and always being that guy that people would look at because of his attention to detail with himself. Hmm. So... He didn't last in Oxford that long. Not because he's not a smart dude, but because I, it sounds like he was just bored. <laughs> he yeah. was like, you know what? There's a war going on. So he decided just to become an officer in the military. And he, the charming dude that he was, became good duties with the general that he worked under. And managed to gain commission with the prince's regiment and managed to become best friends with Prince George. Uh-huh. So they were like best frenemies. They they were they liked the same things. They liked status. They liked being the Joneses and they liked to drink and they, they liked to party. <laughs> and they they just loved to show off. So they were like the perfect bros of the time. They're like the Corys, Haim and yeah. Feldman. Oh, yeah. They they are the Corys of the Regency. They are just, like, brat packing it, like, through. And, and yeah, so they, they became real good besties. And George, shortly after being part of the military, he spent a good couple years there. But he received his inheritance while he was in the military. And his inheritance was $20,000, which, well, 20,000 pounds, which was a lot of money back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's around $500,000. And hmm. sh- shortly after receiving that inheritance, he was like, you know what? Maybe I don't want to be in the military anymore. <laughs> Maybe I just want to be a rich guy. So yeah. he leaves and he basically just puts in his resignation. And the prince is like, yeah, that's cool. Like, that means you can hang out with me in London. Yeah. And George does exactly that. He buys himself a house at, uh, in Mayfair and he ingratiates himself into society, which is an extremely impressive thing to do for somebody 
who doesn't come from a bloodline. Yeah, he's like the son of essentially tradespeople. Yeah, you have to be an extraordinary <clears throat> person in order to be fully accepted in, into that high of a level of society at that time. To be best friends with a prince and hang out with a prince all the time. So th- they were, if you listen to our previous episode, you know Prince George was a bit of an asshole. <laughs> yeah. And his friend George, Brummel, same. That's why they got along so well. They were both drunken idiots and they enjoyed each other's company and they enjoyed being bitchy together. That's just what their deal was. So much so that there's a story that Princess Caroline, when she married Prince George, Princess Caroline blamed Brummel for being part of the reason why her wedding was ruined. Oh, <laughs> Why her damn. wedding and honeymoon was ruined because Prince George was too busy getting drunk with Brummel <laughs> to pay any attention to her. Mm. At the same time, Prince George, by all accounts, was incredibly underwhelmed <laughs> with his bride and would have done that with or without Brummel. <laughs> and yeah, with his fashionable sensibilities and his friendship with the prince, he was just, he was the talk of the ton. He, he was that guy. He was the fashion influencer of that era. Yeah, He was as big as any fashion influencer today for Regency England. And that's how he became Big Daddy Dandy. <laughs> gentlemen would come up to him and solicit him for advice regularly and (laughs) which imagine the power of course you would be an asshole if people constantly came to you seeking your opinion on their look yeah like seeking validation oh yeah yeah Yeah. he he loved to hand it out and he loved he loved to cut he actually the idea of the cut direct which is something from bridgerton or not from bridgerton but mentioned in bridgerton where you kind of snub somebody to the face in front of people is a Brummel thing. It is a Prince George and Brummel thing because they would do that because they were those assholes of the time. And because people were constantly asking them for his opinion. There's one story. There's a lot of stories of like people asking him for his opinion. Just a couple of them. There apparently was one occasion where Brummel criticized the cut of the Prince Regent's coat. (laughs) And and the prince burst into tears. (gasps) <gasps> oh no that's how powerful this guy's word was this, he read him he read him the, the library was always open <laughs> with, with brummel he was wow. always in the library always reading and there was one time apparently that someone came up to him in whites the gentleman's club and was like hey what do you think about the cut of my coat <laughs> brummel looked at him up and down and said, just kind of like sadly, you call this a coat? <laughs> <laughs> just a Damn, fucking bitch. Girl. Just like, a fucking bitch. Like, it's <laughs> like cold. Cold. That's... So cold. Yeah. Cold blooded. But that made him all the more sought out because he had such high standards. He was like beyond the, the two sets of clothing a day. He made an art out of dressing and, and out of being seen. In fact, fellow dandies would gather at his house just to watch him dress. Uh, and that would take three hours on average. Wow. It, <laughs> These are definitely dudes with nothing to do. Nothing at all to do. Yeah. Imagine being that bored. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, so he always had an audience. He always held court. He was someone with that presence. Much like longtime sponsor of the show, Mary Wiggett. 
George was known as Beauty, so much so that he was commonly known as Bo. And that's how oh. he's actually known today is Bo Brummel. Yes. <laughs> you, you hardly ever see him referred to as George because he earned that nickname and it stuck. Wow. And I mean, baby boy put the Bo in the Beaumont. And <laughs> if it sounds like I'm about to go full Lin-Manuel Miranda, it's only because this asshole story puts a song in my heart <laughs> and, and I, I need to sing it. <laughs> One of the biggest influences from Bo can still be seen today because he is the originator of the men's suit as we know it. Mm. He came up with the long black slacks, the black coat, the white shirt, that kind of monotone look. He came up with that cut. He made it by nature of being him with his influence. He made that the standard for Regency men at the time for evening looks. And one of the things he did, which is very delightful is he didn't want any tailor to be able to claim that they came up with that cut. Mm. So, so what he did was he, he was like, I am I am the designer of this look. No tailor is going to come out and say that they are the designer of this look. So he had different parts of the outfit made by different tailors so that, <gasps> so that no one knew the entire construction and no one could put it together themselves. So he, he was also... A fashion designer. Yeah, that's some like military strategy. That is some HH home shit. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. That that is like some psychopath. Yeah. It's like that's like <laughs> hardcore belief in your own brilliance, on like a level I am was never meant to understand. I oh think. yeah. He he. Like, imagine like being like you know what I'm gonna work. I'm working on something new. I'm working on something new. But I know it's gonna be the thing, and I don't want anybody else to claim it. <laughs> yeah, like he had to—he had to have those feelings ahead of time. Yeah, for sure. Like he had to be so sure of himself to to be able to even think that far ahead. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's at the height of his life, and he lived like this for decades within society. He was that top dog for a long, long time. But. Yeah. As it can be with friends who are maybe toxic for each other, if your friendship is based off of just getting really fucking drunk and gambling a lot and talking shit on people, probably probably a little bit toxic. And and that was so with Prince George or the Prince Regent and Bo, because Bo always had a frank way of talking with the prince. And mm-hmm. sometimes the prince was into it. Sometimes it rubbed him the wrong way. Sure. And Bo was known as an asshole at, of the time. And he didn't save that. He, he didn't soften that for anybody, really, by all accounts. So over time, he was a big gambler. His dandy lifestyle was extremely expensive. So he went through his inheritance pretty quickly. Wow, I bet. And he built up... <laughs> A lot of debt. And he just kind of fell out of society by being, continuing to be so mean without having that same kind of leverage on people anymore. The story that's given for why he completely fell out of society is pretty amazing. Apparently, he threw a ball with two of his friends. And (laughs) at this ball, the Prince Regent shows up. Brummel and his friends are standing there. Prince Regent rocks up and says hi to Brummel's friends, but mm-hmm. doesn't acknowledge Brummel at all. Oh. He gave him a cut direct. Yeah. So then Brummel turned to one of his friends and asked, Who's your fat friend? Ah! <laughs> 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 
holy shit. I like uh, <laughs> nerve. Can you imagine? Nerve. Just sure. how did everyone else survive that too? Because I would have reacted the same exact way I just did. Yeah. Like if if I was an earshot, I would have fucking lost it. I mean, it's <laughs> an extremely good read. Yes. <laughs> and it shows how equal they were, right? And wit and cleverness and in meanness. Yeah, which was obviously that's a very combustible combination sure. for two people to share together, and it and it blew up in Brummel's face a little bit. That <laughs> combined with his debts and combined with his debtors coming after him made him eventually flee London, mm. and he he fled to France in order to escape debtors' prison. Well, that makes sense. And oddly enough, even after Prince Regent gave him you know the cut direct, they still stayed in touch enough. <laughs> Hmm. They were still a little bit friends. Like they were always like a little bit friends because I think they they had something each other in each other that they didn't have with anybody else because they were so much equals in a way. Brummel, when he was in France, he led a much different life. He was poor, yeah. <laughs> a little bit sad. Part of the reason why he was such an asshole is because he had syphilis. So, oh damn! Well, that'll do it. Syphilitic bouts got got worse and worse as he aged. Aided his brain, made him more and more erratic and and more aggressive. So he was not living a very good life in France. Though, by all accounts, people around him took care of him. At a certain point, King George, for I'd love to know the reason, they must have penned back and forth a little bit. But King George gave Brummel a British consort post in France. In Cannes. Oh. Yeah. So he made him the, the British consort in Cannes, which had a really good salary. And uh, he did this in 1830, which is after the Regency, obviously, because he's King George now, not Prince Regent George. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, he gave him this post, which is really just to give him money in 1830. And, and then the British government was like, uh, actually, no, we don't need this post in 1832. <laughs> oh, so shit. He gave him the post only to... For it to be taken away. So he did have a good couple years there. But really, truly, at a certain point, I think France was threatening to put him in debtor's prison. <laughs> because yeah. he just he just racked up. He could never learn how to economize because he that's just not part of his skill set. Yeah. He eventually ended up with syphilitic insanity, penniless, mm-hmm. and dead in an asylum in France. Aww. So he, he had a full arc there <laughs> well and he made this lady laugh two centuries after his death so yeah, like harder than i've laughed all day and i'm sure so. that he is somewhere now sitting in front of his daddy and granddaddy who are just side-eyeing each other in judgment for yeah <laughs> being bitchy on high i worked so hard for that <laughs> George. <laughs> but he did, I mean, to become best friends with the king, like, you really can't get higher than that. No. I as mean, far he, as, like, terms of status. He soared as high as you could get. Yeah. As far as where where he began his station in life to where he was at the height, he did a lot with his life. And, yeah. again, influences style to this day. Yeah. To this very day, the choices that he made, the influence that he had can be seen in modern society, which is, I mean, a testament to to somebody's impact, uh, the impact life can have. Yeah. 
Man, that's yeah. amazing. Now do you see why I was so excited? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I he's, yeah, he's great. He's fucking cool. I mean, man. in a terrible way, but like Oh yeah. But like, yeah, he'd be someone who would be like super fun to run into at parties. But like you would never super, like hang out with. Yeah, you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't know? want to know probably on a, like a personal level. Right. You definitely wouldn't give him any like information that you you treasured. No. <laughs> and I would never ask him for his opinion on anything. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> but yeah, so that's Bo, and that it. is Regency men's fashion. I love it. In such a short amount of time, look how intense interesting and well-rounded some of these fashions are it's a huge shift in fashion and the purpose of fashion because so much of it was to be more practical yeah and that i'm sure is also partially influenced by the beginnings of industrialization Mm -hmm. you needed to be able to travel farther distances on a regular basis you needed clothes that could deal with wear and tear Mm -hmm. When Aaron and I were talking, I mentioned that, you know, the doing the research for this particular episode, I felt like that galaxy brain meme <laughs> where the more I learn, the more I'm like, oh, my God, one history is so fucking cool, guys. Yeah, truly. <laughs> and it's also so important to know your references. It is wild that we see it today, even back with our generation coming up as the youth. We had a lot of references in the 90s, especially mm-hmm. to the 70s. Oh, yeah. Bell bottoms are one thing. Right. And we're circling back to a time where the youth today uh, <laughs> are super into the 90s which is a reference of the 70s so right. it's like right they're doing this kind of copy of a copy thing and, and making it their own thing but they're all kind of influencing each other or they all feed into the same sort of influence which is so interesting and, and yeah. it, again still happens you can buy and wear an empire waisted dress today mm-hmm. and be referencing two major points in history and also very comfortable for that thanksgiving dinner (laughs) (laughs) the most important part it is interesting and now that we have more access i would say to well with the dawn of photography and and you know moving pictures such great access to the last century as far as like seeing exactly what people wore and how they fashioned themselves yeah it's interesting to see the cycle and how that continues and in which ways because i don't know that we would be i mean i'm not saying no but like the fact that let's say for instance the men's hairstyle talking about how they were referencing caesar and like titus i feel like there's like another guy Mm -hmm. that came up in some of my readings or whatever but they didn't have a polaroid of these dudes they had sculpture of him so like So for them to reference that style of art, I don't know. It's just they're so it's so it's different and interesting and how it all overlaps is yeah, you can just get lost in it. Yeah, and to bring it back to today and to Bridgerton, Bridgerton the Netflix series has started its own little fashion yeah. movement. We're seeing a trend in Regency era clothing mm-hmm. and jewelry and in that Regency Empire kind of style dress especially during the pandemic when people are dressing for comfort mm-hmm. it's becoming a, a major thing again and i for one love to see it yeah definitely because we're seeing that cycle through again and again we're seeing it cycle through with a modern lens yeah and interpretation of color and pattern and fabric as well so yeah it's just again the wheel of time what i'm assuming the wheel of time is about <laughs> <It's> gotta be <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> gotta be 
is just the nature of fashion. <laughs> and if it's not, I, you know, I'll write my own fic about it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's fashion for you. Obviously, there's so much more. There's so, oh, yeah. so, so much more. And we just touched on the very surface of it. Men's fashion, they were very concerned with how they looked. They spent a lot of time on grooming themselves. And there's so much that can be read into it. Some said it was premature for Elle and I to start selling ad space directly to the fans of the podcast. The podcast hasn't even been released yet, they exclaimed. Literally, no one even knows about this podcast other than the two of you, they protested. Well, jokes on the haters, because today we have our first trade car tier Patreon S to put you all on notice. This is to give notice to all of my honored masters and ladies, and the rest of my loving friends, that my Lady Butterfield gives challenge to ride a horse, leap a horse, or run on foot or hollow with any woman in England seven years younger, but not a day older, because I won't undervalue myself, being now 74 years of age. My feast will be the last Wednesday of this month, April, when there will be good entertainment for that day and all the year after. You better work, Lady Butterfield. Oh, one thing I I didn't mention that we should, because it's the, the word, the phrase is used so much in Bridgerton, is leading strings. Yeah. Basically, it is, if you've ever been at the mall... And you have seen a child that has like a backpack that has a leash attached to it that on the other end is a parent. It's basically exactly that. It was like a little ribbon, I think, kind of harness that a kid would wear. And that it would be either attached, literally tied to their mother's skirts, or their mother would be holding it or whatever. It was in two parts. One, to help them stay where they were and like keep them visible. But two, yeah, sometimes it could be used to help them when they were starting to learn how to walk and crawl. Yeah, I mean, um, we've been we've been leashing kids since forever. Right, okay? right, so, right. Like, I, I know that there's been a movement against it. I'm not too familiar with modern day parenting takes, but I'm not yeah. going to judge anybody. Kids are tough to deal with. No, yeah. And it's not like they're not wearing a dog collar. Or yeah, like, it's, it's not, not like, like they're putting that. choking collars on kids. <laughs> right, it's pretty comfortable for the kid. Yeah. Yeah. The kids that I always see are like literally at the end of their, like... <laughs> If they weren't wearing those leashes, they'd be gone. Like, oh they'd yeah, they're be... generally the type of kids who need it because <laughs> yeah. they're runners. <laughs> yeah, they're like a good like eight feet in front of their parent. So yeah, when Simon says to Daphne, "You're barely out of your leading strings" or whatever, it's incredibly hyperbolic. Yeah, like, because that would happen she's... when you're like five. Yeah, <laughs> she's like decades older than a leading string. Yeah, so yeah. it was a, it was a bit of pejorative. Yeah, a little bit of a Brummel there. Yeah, a little, like a little bit, bit of a Brummel. Yeah. You're kind of, you know, you're kind of being a little bit sassy when you mm-hmm. say something like that to somebody. But it does sound like it was a kind of a common yeah, <laughs> thing to be definitely. said about somebody who's too young. Yeah. So that's fashion. Yeah. And now we have a game. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I don't know why I keep feeling the need to explain how good or bad it is. Um, <laughs> If you've listened to this podcast before, you know the game we like to play. It's Would You Rather. Yeah. And I have a simple one for you today. Okay. Would you rather go down on a Regency farmer or lick the inside of a modern toilet bowl? 
Like, uh, hey, hey, like you, my brain more, is. If you need more details, I I will give you more details. Frozen, just please, yeah, un- unpack it for me a little bit. If you've if you've got more of a vision. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say I have too much of a vision, but like, so uh, Regency farmer, right? Um, I'm thinking, you know, like a like a gentleman farmer, like your Mister Martin type. Okay. Um, but it it is after a day of work, like he's yeah. Like, He's he's been out farming. Um, he's coming home, and he uh, <laughs> he's in a mood. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that that's your situation. There is he's okay. gentleman farmer. Been working hard all day. Needs some relief. You've been waiting to give that relief. Sure. <laughs> or like the inside of a modern toilet bowl. Like so, who who does the toilet belong to? So that's the thing. Like, it, it's not. Let, let's make it like an abstract toilet bowl, right? Okay. So this is this is just your common, average household toilet that does get use. Okay. But not like it's not like commercially used. You know what I mean? It's not like a public. Sure. Restaurant. Not, okay. It's not a public restroom. It's a you know it's a it's a um a household toilet probably had some use that day before you licked it. God. Again, licking the inside of it. Is it my toilet? It's abstract. So it, okay. just imagine your average home, average toilet Okay. in, I don't know, a, a two or three person household. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Not even the main toilet. Like maybe this is like the upstairs toilet, you know, oh, like this is okay. the one that's like not used as much. Right. But it is used regularly. Uh-huh. Average mm-hmm. cleanliness of a modern toilet bowl. You know, nothing, nothing disgusting, but also right. But there's germs. But there's, there's yeah, there. and, and unseen, yeah. icky. And you don't know who's done what in that toilet no, bowl. No, I don't. You don't. You don't know that day. You don't know who's done what. You know, people have gone into the bathroom. You don't know what they did in there. So the reason I ask about because, like, I if it's if it was just me and like my own fecal matter, I feel like biologically, yes, it's waste, but like I'm not as likely to get sick. Mm, I think fair. of my own whatever that's paired against let's say this is a farmer I'm into mm-hmm. and like I he can, enjoy he can be hot yeah and I enjoy that activity I don't want to get too much into it in case a relative ever listens to this but like yeah I, I'm not a, that's a good activity that's a fun activity for me yeah good, um, good consensual love sure but he's also a farmer of the regency era regency. He's, he's not that's not bathing it, all the time. He's not that into cleanliness, I have to tell you. Um, right. He's not, you know, the, the the attitudes on hygiene, especially from the lower classes, was fairly lax. Much more yeah. lax than we would consider it today. Even even in the upper classes, there were uh, tons of people who just hated bathing. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's someone that I would say has the average hygiene of the time. Let's make okay. it average. Which is not great. Not right. great. Nope. Just, average and he's you know you're living on a farm yeah i will say one thing maybe if you're living on a farm in the regency era most likely your nose is used to a certain level of stank you know true well and the other thing i'm thinking is that you know in my dating history 
I can't say that I haven't been in like a probably pretty, pretty similar hygiene situation with someone. Let's say that this is like an early summer day. He's okay. Uh huh. And you know he's he's out there digging. He's out there tending to livestock. He's out there helping build a fence for a neighbor. He's he's yeah, working. That's sweet. He's working, and he See, deserves. I he think, deserves. Okay. You know what? I'm I'm gonna make a decision. I'm going with the first one. I'm going with wow. Mr. Mr. Martin. Okay. The reason being that it's an act of love. Mm-hmm. It's an yeah. act with purpose that like, <laughs> I'm giving someone pleasure. Mm-hmm. Again, my nose is probably used to quite a stank. You know, I've dated someone who plays video games all day. Yep. Uh, I don't think it's that dissimilar. Like, really, in the grand scheme of things. You know, dirty... <laughs> Dirty dicks, pretty universal, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, with the toilet, pros to that would be lick is one and done. We're in like more of a modern society, so at some point it's been cleaned and like chemically treated. Not right before yeah. I licked it. I mean, you know, it's, it's probably it probably is cleaner and less smelly. Right. It's porcelain. It's not going to hold on yeah. to. Dr- yeah. But just pointlessness of it is like. <laughs> Uh, something that's, I'm not, I don't know, my brain, like, can't, I don't know. I just, like, can't see myself just being like, okay. I don't know. And if I dig this guy. I mean, it could, it could be an act of love. Don't kink shame. It, it well, that's could. true. That's true. We don't know who else is in the room, why I'm yeah. doing it. That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah. Like, like maybe, think- maybe in this situation, you're uh, married to a modern day Mr. Martin farmer type. <laughs> And, true and you know instead of you know sucking his dick he wants you to lick the inside of a toilet and that's yeah that's the thing that, that you guys like yeah but i don't know that i like because <laughs> i haven't done that before which i've done the other thing so Fair. as long as it's um it's not nigel burbrook's little burbrook <laughs> um i think i might be into that first one wow yeah. i know listen i know it's the thing with me that like i think Sometimes people ask me, would you rather is with like, there's like a clear answer. And I, That's my better. My brain is just never, I can't even predict sometimes. Yeah. I like, very purposefully made this not Nigel Burbrook because I knew what the I answer would be. That. You would lick that toilet. That. And I also purposely made it not Simon because I already know you would let him <laughs> shit in you. <laughs> so... I'd be like, shut the laptop down. Where is he? Where is he? Uh, um, well, no, but yeah, like Mr. Martin, even like especially that Mr. Martin played by whatever his name is in the 1996 Emma. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Into it. He's cute. So yeah. Well, dirty bird. Yeah, that is pretty dirty. <laughs> I mean, to be fair though, both options would make you true. incredibly filthy. Uh, <laughs> true, true, true. Good. Maybe not of body, but of mind at least. <laughs> yeah, so now we know. Now, dear listeners, now we, know. we know what kind of dirty hair <laughs> it is. Use with that what you will. Yeah, just the thought of a Regency farmer's. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like to, in my mind, they're just like stink lines. <laughs> I just like I don't know. I'm just thinking of like the what I've put up with from men I've dated in the past. Fair. And it's like, yeah, I don't know that it's that much worse. 
<laughs> See, it's funny because my my mindset is like, yeah, I I've like also dealt with that, and yeah. that's why I don't want it to be any worse. And <laughs> I that's true. I could barely stand. Fair point. <laughs> what I've had to deal with. Yeah. If it got worse, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very fair point. Fair point. A thousand expressions of gratitude for joining us on this episode, dear listeners. And thank you next to filmmaker, activist, and friend of the show, Kwame Phillips, for gracing us each episode with his ducal vocalism. You can check out more of his work at KwamePhillips.com. That's K-W-A-M-E-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S.com. And you can reach out to us via Twitter, Instagram, and email at TonTalkPod. That's T-O-N-T-A-L-K-P-O-D at gmail.com and social media. Until next time, XOXO, Aaron and L.